my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Howdy, hey, and hello there. Welcome to another episode of Weird Finance, where we try to help you feel a little less weird about money one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Paco DeLeon, and on this week's episode, I'm chatting with Liz Tran. In the Western world, there is an association between success and money that is potent. Money represents value, and if you create value, you get value. Of course, there is the exception some people inherit value. In our consumer-driven society, money can be a salve for our desires. But if we're not careful, if we don't dig deeper to try to understand whether we want to buy a sweater because we're cold or because we want to be seen, to feel relevant, or young, then we risk going down a path collecting other people's ideas of what's valuable and how to be valuable. In order to do this, We ignore our own desires and we don't do the things that give us a sense of self-worth and inner confidence. This week's guest is Liz Tran. She's an executive business coach and author of The Karma of Success, Spiritual Strategies to Free Your Inner Genius. Through her work, Liz, who is a Buddhist, reminds us all how to reconnect with ourselves by using ancient tools. Her work helps people trust their intuition and dampen messages from the Western world that prioritize external markers of success. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Liz. Liz Tran, I am so thrilled to be chatting with you today. I have been in a deep relationship with your new book, The Karma of Success. (laughs) So you've been, you know, through space and time whispering in my ear, sharing your wisdom. And I'm very excited to have you on to share your wisdom with our audience. So thank you so much for coming on the Weird Finance Podcast. Thank you. This is actually, you know, what you talk about on the show is something that I think people don't talk about enough, right? And so I'm just very honored to have this space to talk about this very important topic that people don't bring up enough. Thank you, Liz. 
So before we dig in and you drop these amazing nuggets that are going to blow our minds, would you mind just sharing a little bit about who you are and how you became the wonderful executive coach and author and podcast host sitting in front of me today? Yes. I had a little bit of a circuitous winding, meandering path, probably. (laughs) You know, I always had plans and intentions and those plans and intentions often went off the rails. So I very, I would say financially, with a lot of financial insecurity. My mom was an immigrant from Vietnam. And so we grew up in Section 8 housing and you know, we were on food stamps and things like that. And so I was very determined, like I think many children of immigrants, uh, to do something with a lot of prestige. And my mom was working as a paralegal at a law firm. And when I was eight years old, I thought, I'm going to be a lawyer. That's That seems like a great job. Everyone thinks that job is very cool. So that was my working framework all through, you know, middle school, high school, college, I said, I'm going to be a lawyer. And it's so funny that that seed just started with the fact that my mom was a paralegal and she really admired the people who she worked for. And I did all the things. I studied for the LSAT. I worked at a law firm right out of college. I applied to law school and it wound up really not working out. I didn't get into a single law school. <laughs> you know, maybe that's for the better, Liz. I think maybe you dodged a huge financial bullet there with all that debt. I really did. And also it was not for me, you know, the choice was to do this was purely based on this idea that this was the right prestigious thing to do. And I hated working at a law firm. I wasn't very good at it either. (laughs) Um, And I don't think I would have been very good as a lawyer either. So this was the first kind of turn of the path where I didn't know what to do. And my friend said, you know, I'm living in New York. Why don't you come live in New York and share an apartment with me? And I said, okay, I'm going to go do this. So I moved to New York. I quit my job. And it was 2008. So it was the recession. So I couldn't really find an office job. So I was waiting tables until a friend of mine said, why don't you look at startups? They seem to be hiring. (laughs) No one else is really hiring, but they're hiring. And that's what happened. I got an entry level job as a recruiter, like literally a tech recruiter. And that became my career for the next 10 years. And so, you know, that evolved into from recruiting to people operations and, you know, as a manager and then I was a director So my career grew and grew and grew. But remember, this was nothing that I had actually chosen before. And then kind of along the same path, I started getting really into spirituality and yoga and Buddhism. And I took a year to go travel. And during that time, I actually started inadvertently a consulting practice where I started working with clients to help them with all things recruiting and people operations. And then from there, I got a job offer to work at a venture capital firm And then suddenly I was like 31 years old and I was an executive at a venture capital firm when, you know, me 20 years before that was like, you know, I think it would be very cool to be a lawyer. And so here I was and it was this very crazy path. And and it was there in venture capital that I learned a lot. It wasn't for me at the end of the day, but I learned what executive coaching was. And I was probably 31 or 32 at the time. And as soon as I heard someone describe what an executive coach does, I thought, ah, that's it. That's what I want to do. And it took me 32 years to even know that that job existed. And now I've been doing it for the past four years. And I constantly think, this is the greatest job. I love this job. But as you can see, my journey was this constant expansion of reverse of knowing what's possible out there, moving to bigger and bigger, you know, vantage points of perspective to understand what was even possible for me out in the world. You know, when I was a kid, I thought lawyer was probably the best thing I could possibly be. But if you look around at the jobs now, I think about all the jobs that my friends have. I didn't even know any of those. Like, what was, like, what's a UX designer? I didn't know that. You know, there wasn't that choice before. And so I think that, you know, you're right. Like I dodged a bullet with law school. I dodged a bullet with a lot of things I did, but all of those steps were exactly what I needed to very luckily and serendipitously land me into the place where I actually did get to discover through, you know, no intention of my own or no (laughs) effort of my own, a job that is really rewarding and I love so much. So 
I've hired a coach before, but I would love if you would explain exactly what an executive coach does. Yeah. So there are lots of different types of executive coaches, but the way that I work is I work specifically with founders of tech companies because that's who I know best. And generally they are from seed stage to series C. That's sort of my bread and butter is like that earlier stage startup, even Series C is a little bit late, but those are clients I've been working with for a long time. And I coach them really on three things. The first thing is acute issues, problems, and decisions. So they might come to me during a session and say, hey, Liz, I am thinking about firing this person. Let's talk about it. Or, you know, I'm thinking about whether or not I should use resources to hire this, you know, consultant, you know, things like that, that are coming up for them real time. And I am, you know, a sounding board someone to be a thought partner to them. The second thing I do is I help them with personal effectiveness. So I'm really digging into what their schedule looks like, what their calendar looks like, what their hobbies look like to figure out how we can turbocharge them with energy and creativity and, you know, just even like have them fire all cylinders at all times. And so that's different for each person, but I'm, I will often be like as tactical as like, let me look at your calendar Tell me which meetings are draining you, which ones are giving you life. So that's a huge chunk of it. And it's always evolving. And then the last piece is really helping them on their growing journey. These companies I work with are often raising a new round of capital every 12 to 18 months. So they're leveling up pretty quickly, hiring lots of new employees. And therefore, the role of the CEO or founder needs to change with the company as it changes So I just help kind of spot and identify trends and patterns. And then the form this takes is like, I usually meet with my clients either every week or every other week for an hour. And I've been working with most of my clients for two or three years now. Wow, that's amazing. That sounds like a really challenging and fulfilling job, frankly. (laughs) I love it. You really get into it with someone, you know? It's like, because there's no other person for them who has both context. Like I know everything about their business and also has detachment at the same time. Mm -hmm. I'm not involved in the business. I'm not a board member. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not an employee. I'm not a peer. I'm someone who doesn't have any skin in the game. And that's actually really helpful. That's, I never thought about it like that, but that makes a lot of sense. Hmm. So Liz, your wonderful new book, Karma of Success, it's, you know, you drop all these different strategies, spiritual strategies, so that we can be successful. And what I noticed about this book was one very prominent character, and that is money. So it shows up in a lot of different ways. The fact that you work with founders who are raising money, right? You talk about your own experiences growing up with money, and money is often a proxy for security. So I think when we're talking about success, it's kind of almost unavoidable to talk about money. So since money is such an important theme, an important character in your book, I want to start there and I want to tackle a very simple but very loaded question. And I've heard you tackle this before. So Liz, here it is. What is money? (laughs) I love this question. The reason why I love this question is because I've been thinking about it for a long time, right? Because so much of my life, you know, money was this thing that existed that I didn't have, that I really, really admired. And, you know, I really had to work through a bunch of you know, per, the way I thought about money was actually not right and actually wasn't serving me. And so the way that I think about money now is that money is simply energetic exchange. And obviously, you know, there's like a physical form to it. Like it comes in currency or it's and you can see it in your bank account. But really what it is, is it's just a method of exchanging like one set of energy for another. So let's say you work for your employer and you put in energy in the form of you know your passion, your commitment, and your output. And then they give you energy back in the form of your paycheck. And in the perfect world, that energetic exchange should feel equal. You know, it should feel fair. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be running a deficit on that energetic exchange. And that's where I think the subjectivity of money comes in, where I have seen some clients who feel so burnt out, so overwhelmed. They're working so hard. And I just say, maybe you should pay yourself a little bit more. They're like, well, we're a startup. I don't know if we can do that. But really what it comes down to is like a set of work that you feel energetically drained by can often be solved 
by having more matching and a higher energetic exchange. Hmm. And so I think about that way when I have a client or when I'm taking on a new project, I always ask, you know, what's the output of my energy? And sometimes there's no amount of money that is worth working with a certain client on a certain situation that would ever be a fair energetic exchange. And other times I really enjoy the work and I'm getting a lot out of it too. And, you know, I'm learning a lot or I'm receiving a lot. And I can even just say, you know, I feel like I don't need to charge my full rate. You know, I have, there are one or two people who I actually do trades with where they'll help me with something and then I'll trade them a session. And I don't do that with everyone, but I find that what they give me is so valuable that it's worth that time. And so I think it's a really beautiful way to think about money because I think people often look externally to answer how much they should charge, how much they should ask for, how much things are worth. They're like, oh, well, what's the data? You know, like, how do I compare this? What are other people in my role making? What are the benchmarks? And at the end of the day, that stuff is useful and it's helpful. But what you're really optimizing for is that you personally feel good that what you are giving out is being returned to you. I love that answer. Okay, so I've heard people say that money is neutral. It's not bad or it's not good. I think that that's also part of your philosophy. But I've also heard people say that money is inherently political. And I just wanted to know your thoughts on these opposing perspectives. Interesting. I actually think it's neutral. I think it's what you what you imbue upon it. For instance, you know, there are people who deploy capital in all sorts of nefarious ways. You, know, you can <laughs> use money to buy anything, you sure. know, any you know, you can use it to create a lot of destruction and there are other people who are using money for a lot of good and then there's a lot of what's in between happening. And so it really just like is a channel that you add like your own color and your own lens to. And so I actually think that the neutrality of money is really important because it means that whoever's deploying that capital has power. Hmm. Like if you have a little bit of money, even if it's a dollar, how you choose to use it is you putting a certain tone or frequency of energy into the world. You know, you can put it in a way that's like full of gratitude and kindness, or you can put it towards a way that feels like scarce, right? And so I think sometimes people are afraid of money or they feel intimidated by money or they feel undeserving of it. And so what I say about that is like, it's none of those things. That's really just what you're projecting onto it. It's incredibly neutral and any of these kind of really activating emotional associations that we have with it are purely like a part of what you're bringing into it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's purely your mindset. I used to think that money was something that I didn't deserve, right? And there also have been times where I thought money was like this really scary thing and I hated it. It's like, why do I need to do this? I thought that money was trapping me. When I worked in venture capital, I was like, well, I'm trapped by this money. But none of that was true. I was just trapped by myself and I was using money as an excuse. Okay, you touched on this a little bit, but one of the things I love so much about your book is how much you talk about gratitude. In your book, you you say, spend twice as much time appreciating what you have as yearning for what you want. So would you mind elaborating on that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So there's this idea, which I'm sure people have heard of called the law of attraction. And it's this idea that like attracts like. So if you think positive thoughts and you know you think positively about your life, then more positive things come in for you. And then conversely, the more you have to complain about and feel bad about, then that actually attracts more of those, you know, negative events to come into your life. And I am all for having goals and trying to like manifest the future that you want. You know, I think manifestation is kind of a buzzword, but it's the idea of like, you know, there's something out there I want and I want to go get it. And I love that. Right. But I think what that mindset also can create when you're too focused on what you want is this feeling that you don't have enough. Hmm. You're like that your current life isn't good enough. There isn't a lot of positive things that are happening to you in the moment. So you're looking towards the future to make you happy, to make you feel fulfilled. And so following the law of attraction, if we're too focused on what we don't have and what we want, then it brings more in to show us that we don't have enough, mm. right? Like it attracts this energy of scarcity, of fear, of feeling like we're not good enough. We don't make enough money. We don't have enough. And so when you actually 
do the reverse of that, which is gratitude. Even though you want something else, you want more and better for your life, you're really able to see how much and how lucky you are in the moment. You know, you think to yourself, you know, my life is actually really good. Look at all these people who love me. Look at all these people who are helping me. Look at all these resources I have. And then that attitude just attracts even more in. And so I say that to make sure that especially the ambitious people out there, you know, who are always like onto their next goal, they remember that it is just as important and just as fruitful for them to pause, not always be moving towards the future and take a look around and really, you know, take a deep breath, smell the roses and think, wow, my life is actually pretty good as it is. Yeah, I just want to punctuate this point with, if your like lens is not oriented to doing that, it can feel silly and you do have to kind of build a habit at first, right? Like maybe writing it in your journal. I know you suggest that or, you know, I, I know a lot of families when they have dinner, they they ask each other, what was your your bud and your thorn, right? What was good about the day and what was bad about the day? And there's all different ways that you can build the habit. And I want to say, please do this. And what what you'll notice, this is, happened in my life is you don't need to have that rigid practice after a while because you just start to feel just so corny because you're just grateful for the most ridiculous things, right? Like you'll have a cold iced tea on a hot day and you'll no longer need to have that gratitude practice. Like in that moment, you'll start to appreciate the things you have. So I just want to echo your sentiment and say that having the attitude of gratitude for sure pays dividends. And again, it's like once you start to do it, it's hard to not feel that way about, again, the simple, silly things in this wonderful ride we call life. (laughs) That is so true. It's so true. And I think part of what it is, is that when you do the gratitude practice, you're actually rewiring the neural pathways in your brain to spot those things, right? Because you've trained your brain to look out for all the things like the, I love that example of the cold, cold glass of iced tea on a hot day. I was like, man, that sounds actually pretty good. And I realized <laughs> I had one yesterday and I like didn't stop to think that that was amazing. And, you know, one thing to note is that we humans inherently have a negativity bias. Mm. It is the way that our biology is wired. Our brains work in a really specific way where they actually imprint negative experiences immediately as memories. Positive experiences require about seven seconds Hmm. of thinking about them actively for them to become memories in the brain. And so as a result, we're like naturally wired to like be like Velcro for negative experiences and then Teflon for positive experiences, constantly looking for what we did wrong, what we could do better, what's, you know, failing in our lives and what we need to improve. Whereas there's so much that is going right, that we're doing well, that we have, and we miss it. <laughs> we totally miss seeing it. And so you're right. Like once you start doing the gratitude practice, you become a naturally, become a person who is naturally more wired towards spotting those moments because we all have them. I love that list. Yeah. I always tell my friends and family that I'm annoying and I'm always apologizing for just being so damn exuberant about life, but you're making me, <laughs> you're making me feel like I shouldn't. So thank you for that permission. I love that. I'm sure your your friends and family secretly love it though. They're like, oh yeah. <laughs> My wife always says, you're so sunny. No matter what happens, you're so sunny. And you know, the more she says, I'm like, yes, you're right. I can, I can have fun anywhere. And you know, any situation, I feel like you can find the good in it. So I want to shift the conversation a little bit. And I want to talk about this idea of confidence. Something that really struck me in your book is you shared that you developed true confidence the year that you were six figures in debt, $140,000 in debt. And I think that's a powerful thing to develop during a tough time like that. I'm sure that there are lots of folks who are in debt and they don't feel confident. They feel like their confidence is shaken. So I'd love if you could just talk us through how people can develop true confidence, even if their balance sheet has a big liability on it. Yeah, thank you for asking that question. It's it's one of my favorite experiences of my life. It sounds weird, but so, so what I'll say is that I'll start from, you know, I left my venture capital job and I knew that I wanted to go do something different, something more fulfilling. And I decided to open a physical space, a studio, a learning studio in like Manhattan's most expensive neighborhood. And part of this was like a reaction to my previous job where 
just you sit around like making PowerPoint presentations and thinking all the time. You don't do anything real or tangible. So I wanted something that you could touch. And so I opened the studio. I took out a $100,000 loan to remodel the space because it was something else before. It was like an office space that was very crowded and really ugly. And you know, I used it to pay like the deposit and, you know, the security deposit for the rent and then to actually like do a full overhaul, buy furniture, you know, all the stuff that you need when you're operating like a space that needs to be comfortable for people. And I thought, okay, we're going to start making money in the first month. This will be great. But what actually happened is I was losing money every month. And I was booking clients, you know, basically teams would come in and they would do corporate retreats. And I would have these classes at night and on the weekends where people could come and, you know, learn about different topics. Maybe it was, you know, a sound bath or learning about meditation or even doing a group coaching session for career. And it took a while for that to gain traction. So revenue at first wasn't steady. And then on top of that, expenses were way more than I had planned. I'd never run a space like this before. Mm-hmm. So there were all these expenses that would pop up on a weekly basis. And I was like, oh no, I need to buy four air conditioner units because suddenly it's June in New York City and I didn't realize we didn't have central cooling. Or people would complain about how uncomfortable the chairs were. So I was like, oh my gosh, I need to order some custom cushions. And on and on and on where I started losing money every month. And that was coming away from my savings. So I dipped into my savings to pay for the expenses every month. Then when that money ran out, I dipped into my 401k. And then when that money ran out, I put it on, I took cash advances against a couple of credit cards. Liz, I'm getting Um, anxious just hearing you talk about this. Yeah, it was very, very anxiety inducing. I was so anxious. My hair was falling out. I was like chain smoking cigarettes, which I hadn't done since I was like so much younger, you know, going to clubs and things like that. And (laughs) I was so stressed out. I was just like chugging bubble tea and like, you know, doing all these things that really just to, to kind of just like numb how stressed out I was. Like I remember once I had to look at my bank account because I had a Yelp page, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I'd accidentally signed up for like their $500 a month subscription. And so I had to see how many months they had charged me. And I like looked through my credit card statement and I remember my, I couldn't even do it. My heart was palpitating and, you know, I just couldn't even look at all the bills I had. And so then around four months into the business, I got like a tax bill for $30,000. And I was like, oh no, this is crazy. So at this point it was like everything I owed plus this $30,000 tax bill and $170,000 total. And I was really stressed out, but at least the business had started breaking even. And then slowly after month six, it started to make a little bit of money, a few thousand dollars here and there every month. And I thought, okay, wow, I finally have the client traction. I finally have, you know, the the public knows about us. I've been in a bunch of um, high profile media placements like the New Yorker, New York Times. And then right when I was like starting to have my footing under me, then March... 17th, 2020. And New York City said, you know, this COVID is a pandemic and we are shutting down all in-person gatherings, which was my only revenue stream. So that was incredibly stressful because I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no idea how I was going to pay back this debt. So I moved everything into storage. And by that, I like, mean, I basically just sat on the floor and cried. And then my husband, who was then just my partner, my boyfriend, he packed everything up for the movers and then we put it in storage and it was in storage for like just until recently. Hmm. And I felt like I had poured all this money, all this energy, think of money as energy too, to this thing that no longer existed, that only lasted for nine months and was only really thriving for three months. So in this moment, I was so mad, mostly at myself. I felt like I had chosen the wrong business model. I'd made all the wrong decisions. I had overspent I hadn't been careful enough. I was just dumb to think that it worked. And this, of course, was very triggering because I thought, maybe I shouldn't follow my dreams. Maybe I don't deserve to do that. Maybe I was just doing better before when I was just like a cog in the wheel of this tech venture capital thing. And I was so depressed, like 
some days it would just be so hard to even get up and like get dressed and do the dishes or, you know, go walk my dog. And I realized that part of the reason why I felt so bad is because I spent my whole life trying to get confidence from external sources of validation. Since I'd always worked for other people and I'd oriented myself to being like, is this good enough? Did I do a good job? Did I help you? You know, my whole work was always around like helping other people, helping people find jobs, helping people, you know, hire people, whatever it was. I was very, I saw my job as like a service role and like, I felt good about myself when I could help someone solve their problem. And suddenly, you know, working for yourself, you don't have anyone patting you on the back. (laughs) You don't have anyone telling you good job. And in fact, I had the opposite of, I had like a string of failures that were telling me, you're not very good. And then I decided in that moment, if I tether my happiness and my confidence on how I'm doing in life, I'm going to feel pretty bad about myself for like the next couple of years. Yeah. So I thought to myself, if I, if I base my confidence on how well I'm doing and how much I'm succeeding, I'm going to feel pretty bad about myself for at least the next couple of years while I'm getting my business off the ground. And then I thought, you know what? I want to learn how to love myself no matter what, because it's not coming from anywhere else. It's not coming from success, achievement. And I don't have the time to sit around and just like hate myself. You know, that's not positive for anything. And so very similar to gratitude practice, I started looking at self-gratitude. And every day after I'd write three things that I was grateful for, you know, small things like, buying a cup of coffee, you know, even having money to pay my rent, like very, very simple things. I would also write down three things I did well that day. And sometimes they were as simple as like, I checked my email and I wrote four emails, (laughs) right? Or like I had a meeting with someone and I showed up and I wasn't tired and I did a good job. And so not even about like the big things like landing new clients, right? It was very much just like, hey, am I putting one foot in front of the other? And I started becoming my own biggest cheerleader because no one else was cheering me on. And honestly, it felt kind of silly. Like to, it was like such little things I was applauding myself for, but like every step of the way, just being like, hey, good job. Oh, you're surviving today. You're resilient. You're doing this. Um, it was what I needed to keep going. And I'm so glad I kept going because I almost gave up at so many junctures. But then within a year of all this happening, then I had fully paid back all of my debt. And it was, it was amazing. I mean, part of it was like luck. I actually got like a lot of money back in taxes from when I had this job and I paid a lot of money taxes, but then it was also getting new clients. It was like landing new clients. It was finding, you know, contracts that, you know, paid me a lot for things I wanted to do. And it was just like, honestly being confident. Cause I know too, that if I had shown up to these meetings to pitch for new clients, feeling like a failure, they could feel that energy for me. So it's this negative spiral that goes down and down. And so that's a hard thing is like when you're down and out and you feel the worst, can you show up and feel so confident? And that's going to create that upward spiral. Yeah, confidence is such an X factor. It's so important. And I feel like people don't talk about it as much. Maybe it's like in in femme spaces, maybe it's not talked about as much because I feel like I feel like some some I'm thinking about some of the men in my life and how they're just so naturally confident. It, clearly it's something that they value or maybe somebody talked to them about it. I feel like nobody ever sat me I'm I'm trying to run through my Rolodex of memories now and I'm like no one really ever sat me down to talk to me about how important confidence is except maybe like in the context of sports actually. And I I'm glad actually that sports has given that to me and yeah, confidence is one of those things where it's maybe not easy to see the hard line between I'm confident and here's how I can be quote unquote successful or translate that to money. But it is really one of those like soft skills, like emotional intelligence that I think really pays dividends. Definitely. And, you know, when my clients go to fundraise, they're usually looking for success in the fundraise as a, a, a reason to feel confident, right? They're like, oh, if I can raise this round, I'll feel good about my business and I'll be validated that this is actually good business. And what I say to them is I'm like, no, you need that confidence when you first walk in the door to pitch. Um, Because if you don't have it, you're not going to guarantee yourself a good outcome. And, you know, it is subtle. It is an X factor. 
but it's very palpable. Mm-hmm. You know, people can feel if like you're, you know, behind what you're saying and what you really believe. And at the end of the day, you know, confidence is basically having conviction in your own skills and abilities. It's not about having, you know, pride in your achievements. And that's actually the difference. Like confidence is a feeling. It's not a prize. Mm. Yeah, I love that. You can't fake the funk, Liz. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing. And of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Many years ago, I started to earn more money. And year after year, my income went up. Before I knew it, I had myself a high-paying job. So I started to spend more. You know, nice clothes, dinners out, traveling the world, and more. Every time my income went up, so did the lavishness of my lifestyle. Until one day, I had to pay for some expensive car repairs. And I realized I didn't have the money. Even with my increased pay, I was still living paycheck to paycheck. But how? Well, it turns out that I fell into the trap of lifestyle creep. This happens when we spend more as we earn more. Even though it was fun, it left me financially vulnerable. Since then, I've turned things around. I save and invest a portion of every paycheck. And now I know that true financial security and wealth doesn't come from what I spend, but what I keep and invest. I'm prioritizing my financial future as much as the present, and I hope you'll do the same. Don't fall into the trap of lifestyle creep. 
Weird Finance. Weird So I've heard you talk about achieving goals and they require two things, equal parts, action and receptiveness or the ability to receive. And I would love it if you could just expand on this and and give us tips on how we can strengthen our receptiveness. Yeah, definitely. We are so goal oriented, all of us. And the way that I like to think about this is, let's say you are in a boat. And you know where you want to go and you're rowing the boat. Yeah, of course, like row and try to get there, but also follow the current and where it's taking you, right? Like like be curious about the bends of the river and where they're going because none of us are playing this game of life in a vacuum. We have to play the game that's on the field. Mm. You know, there are things coming at us that we could never expect. Some of them are going to be obstacles and some of them are going to be boosters. And if we are so heads down, focused on just doing the five-year plan, then we miss out all these potentially great things that could happen to us. And I think about my career in that way where like, you know, I was always moving towards something. I always had a goal. And Sometimes it wound up being that like the goal I had, it wasn't meant to be achieved, but it took me into the right direction. People always say, how'd you get into venture capital? I wanted to get into venture capital. I don't have a very good story for that because it happened a little bit inadvertently, but I did have a goal. It wasn't to be in venture capital, but it was to have, you know, like a great consulting practice of my own. And that somehow led me to venture capital. And even though it wasn't in the plan, I just said yes. And so I think a lot of it is about seeing what's in front of you. And even if it's not exactly what you planned, saying, yeah, okay, what can I do with this? How can I turn this into something really magical? And so I think it's equal parts, right? Because especially for people who are really ambitious, they think, I have a goal, I have a plan, I need to stick to it. And I think the artistry and the mastery is knowing when to be goal-oriented and then when to surrender and receive, when to push and when to receive when to like hustle and then when to just like let things percolate and shake out. And I think a good way to get to that is to ask if as you push, are you experiencing lots of headwinds? Is there a lot of friction? And if so, maybe just like find the current of the river and slide down that way for a little bit. I like that advice. Yeah, I always tell the story of how I got my book deal, even how I got this podcast. and. You know, I always describe it as like just divine timing. And a lot of it for me, a lot of my, when I finally started to feel success in my own career, yeah, a lot of it was <laughs> just seeing where the current would take me and being curious about what's around the bend. It's a beautiful poetic analogy. But, you know, when I was reading your book, Liz, so much of it had me like violently nodding my head up and down because. Mm. There's so much in it that feels like counterintuitive, right? Like go, I'm sure you give advice that on its nose seems frivolous, right? Like if you are an artistic person and you had a relationship with painting before, maybe go explore painting for a little bit, you know, and it feeds your soul and it feeds your creativity and it feeds you personally in a way that does result in more success. And it might not seem linear, right? It might not seem like A to B. I think that's the hardest part of like playing at a higher level is there's a lot more things that feel like nebulous. You can see how it's interconnected. But I guess ultimately you just have to like trust that gut, right? You have to like trust your own inner voice and trust that you're doing the right things for yourself and that it's going to lead you down the right path ultimately. So I appreciate your voice in this space and, you know, all of the strategies that you've shared with everyone. I want to ask you one more question and then we're going to move on to the rapid fire. And I feel like I could just talk to you for hours, Liz, but... I would, love to, <laughs> I would love to hear you talk about the concept of Buddhist economics and the relationship between money and spirituality. Yeah, definitely. So Buddhist economics is this idea of the least amount of toil, effort, and resources to achieve any given goal, right? That sounds very vague, but I'll just give an example. So let's say you're buying a car, which is very exciting. And you ask yourself, 
what do I want? And maybe it's something to like reliably get you from point A to point B. Um, then buy the thing that is going to be the most, um, you know, resource concert conserving, which is like, what's going to be the least amount of money, right? And the least amount of effort and something that's like not going to stress you out. Um, but if like what your actual goal is, is not just to have a car to get you from point A to point B, it's like to have, to buy yourself a gift that you've always yearned for. Just acknowledge that and be like, maybe I've dreamed about this car for forever and like this is going to satisfy my itch. But maybe the thing to do isn't to buy it, but just rent it for a week, hmm. right? That could be Buddhist economics as well. And so I always think about that where if you think about energy as money, right? Like we are always just trying to make exchanges that feel really good for us. And so if you have money in your bank account, you put out a lot of energy to get that money, you know, to build that bank, to build that that cash in your, in your savings account, your bank account. Um, and so don't go spending it like willy-nilly. Like think about... Am I getting something energetically back from this? Um, and so I do this a lot, like especially now in like a partnership where we have to make a lot of money decisions together. And I tend to be oftentimes more frugal because of how I grew up, but it's not always the case. Sometimes like I'm putting my projections of like what value is on him and money. And so I think what Buddhist economics gets to is it like it asks you, what are you really trying to do hmm. with this money that you're spending or these resources that you're spending? Um, and ask you, is there a way to do this in a less expensive way? And then you have to really admit what the purpose is, right? Like, are you buying a sweater to stay warm? Or are you buying a sweater because you want to look good looking on this meeting <laughs> that you're going to, right? Like that's actually another. So maybe you borrow something from your friend. And so I think that's the question is like, it really gets to when we are spending money, resources, our own energy, ask yourself, what is the true, true desire that I'm asking for here. And it's usually not like like a tactical desire of like a functional one. Um, there's always an emotional undertone to it. The more I learn about money, right, the more I try to understand it, the less I know. And I think the reason why is because it's so emotional. It's so, it's so personal for every person. And the more I try to help one person, the more I realize how unique their perspective is, how their idea of money is like a cocktail or a pizza that was baked at a very young age with very specific ingredients. So I really appreciate that you're allowing people this space to kind of peel back the layers of the onion and understand who they are. And it sounds like to, to do it from a place of, of non-judgment, right? Just acknowledge that parts of you want to look good in a sweater or maybe seem <laughs> younger or, you know, whatever. Maybe younger means relevant, right? Like, exploring those ideas and being okay with it and accepting it and then finding ways to feed both the practical aspect of what you need, but also the emotional desires that you're trying to fill, you know, through spending money. I love that, Liz. Yeah. Every, every desire, like every emotion has like a need that can be fulfilled in a, in a way that like could cost a lot of money <laughs> or could be pretty close to free. Right. It's like, you know, if you want to go on a really nice date with your partner, you're like, okay, it's about connection. There's a way to connect where you're going on like a very lavish trip, but there's also another way to connect that feels like a lot more tailored and like could be close to free. And so I think that's just really the question. And, you know, I think the money projection thing is real. Like you're, you know, you're like, it's different pizza, different cocktail. Like I remember when I, I got married, you know, my twenties young and we wound up getting divorced and I remember like we were arguing about like division of assets with our mediator and we were so mad at each other. And my mediator just stopped us and she goes, you know, none of this is actually about money, right? This is, you literally are just arguing about whether or not the other person appreciates you. Damn. And that always really stuck with me. I know it was so good. Wow. <laughs> good. Wow. What a great mediator. Mic drop mediator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Joy Rosenthal, for anyone who's looking for some <laughs> divorce mediation services in New York City. Shout out to Joy, a purveyor <laughs> of wisdom and seer of truth. Basically like a, a, a monk in a mediator's costume. I love that. <laughs> kind of like you, Liz, right? You're out there coaching, you know, high level executives, but you're dropping such, you know, ancient knowledge on people. Thank you. That's so nice. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Just holding up a mirror, calling it how I see it, Liz. <laughs> Before I let you go, I want to hit you with some personal rapid fire questions. Let's do it. Okay. Is there anything that you purchased that maybe to the naked eye seems frivolous, but to you is money well spent? Yes. 
my dog. This is really funny. I did like a cost assessment on my dog because he was a little expensive. You know, he like, it's, you can get dogs for free, like that need homes Mm -hmm. that are very wonderful. And for whatever reason, like, like I am oriented. It's like adopt, don't shop. But I was like, I don't know. Like, I think, I think I want like a very specific dog. I know. I think I know I want this. I want to, I know the personality, et cetera. And I thought, okay, if he lives for 12 years, and I amortized the cost of him over each year. What does that work out to? <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, like, is that was that enough happiness and joy, like, for the effort that I'm putting into that? And as dogs do, has and like I think all animals and pets has returned. Like, if money is energy, he has given back so much more energy. And people think I'm a little frivolous with my dog. You know, like I put a lot of resources and expense into training him properly, like getting him all the right things, like flying him out here, and. I, this is going to sound so silly, but my dog really taught me unconditional love. Yeah, they did. <laughs> you know, and like, how how can you put a price on that? You can't. Yeah, my dog taught me the same thing. It's like your heart explodes and they sh- they love you the way that you need to love yourself. That's what the dog teaches you. That is exactly right. This is exactly right. And I did not understand that until I saw how much he loved me. And I was like, okay, I can do that. And you know, it was funny when he was a puppy, I used to whisper in his ear, like, just be you. You don't have to be anyone different. And I was like, wait, I think I'm just trying to say that to myself. (laughs) I love that. That's such a great answer, Liz. Thank you for sharing that. What's one piece of advice, financial or otherwise, that you'd give to your younger self? Well, when I look back at this experience of building that business, I would say to myself, girl, make a business plan Mm. and do it with your worst case scenario glasses on we're both intermittently, like our rose-colored, optimistic, I can do anything, I'm confident glasses. Um, and then also sometimes you put on the like, imagine that nothing broke in my favor and everything went to shit. Mm-hmm. Like, what is what am I going to do? And I wish I had done that because I was so focused on like, yeah, I can do it. And I would tell myself like, it's okay, you can hold both. And, and like being really careful um, and, you know, being really thorough doesn't mean that you can't jump off the cliff, right? And leap. It just means you're going to pack a really good parachute. Totally. Yeah. The phrase I always like to use is hope for sun, but prepare for rain. Mm, Love that. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have any financial superstitions growing up by chance? So let me think what we had growing up. I don't think I had any growing up, but I do have some now. Oh. Yeah. So whenever I'm like, like waiting for something to happen, something good, Mm -hmm. I try to like generate really good karma into the universe for myself. It's not like transactional where you're like, oh, I like gave a hundred bucks to this charity. And so I'm going to get some money back. But I try to just like do it as a way of, you know, reminding myself that I have a lot. And so if I'm ever starting to feel like anxious or scarcity minded, I'm like, okay, I need to tip my waiter like maybe 35% tonight, right? Or add like five extra bucks where I wouldn't otherwise. And so I am actually kind of superstitious about that. Like, especially with anything related to like, tipping because I was a waitress for so long, wait staff, anything where people are working hourly and I can add a little bit more. I remind myself like, this is really good karma and you should always do that. And I think it's like bad luck to tip less than 20%. I never heard anyone say that before and I love it so much. (laughs) Do you have any financial fumbles? I know we talked about a big one, but if you have any more that you'd like to share... Do you have any financial fumbles that you can look back on and laugh at? Well, this is kind of a small thing, but uh, you know what they say, like penny wise, pound foolish, Mm -hmm. that phrase. I'm kind of someone who's like, I'm like, oh, if it's on sale, I'll buy it. But the problem is that when things are on sale, you cannot return them usually. (laughs) So I feel like the money I've saved by like buying things on sale that I actually don't really like has not actually worked out. And I still get really susceptible to that sometimes where I'm like, oh, well, look at this coupon. Or it's like two for one or like this brand I love is having a sale. And so what I now have to say to myself is like, if you can't return it, you can't buy it at all, ever, (laughs) ever. And if you... And you have to like return things. Like if you you really use them and try to use them for 30 days, um, because I love gadgets. Like I'm an Aquarius, so I love technology. And so I'm always buying like an almond milk maker or like a sauna blanket, like weird stuff that like I actually don't ever use. And then I like pass the date when I can return it and thinking that I'm going to use it forever. And so I think that's the thing is like knowing that how I feel about something, if I really, really want it at the moment, it may not be true later. And so I need to be able to backtrack. So that's a big one. And then I think a second one is like, I have in New York City, I think this is really easy to 
kind of overspend on your rent sure. and like underestimate your expenses. And so I actually try to keep, I think the old adage was like, oh, if you spend, you know, 25% of your income on your rent, then that's fine. But I actually find that like staying below that is much more comfortable for me. That's great advice. Yeah. I always thought it was weird that even some places say 33% of your income. And listen, I know that it's expensive. We, You and I both live in very expensive cities. So sometimes you're in a situation where it's it's more than that and you have to work through it. But those benchmarks exist for a reason because they help you feel less financially fragile when you can hit them. So all of that with the caveats and the disclaimers. Liz, it has been such a joy chatting with you. I really truly hope that our paths will cross many, many times in the future. For all the people who are feeling just the same amount of love and joy emanating from their hearts as they're listening to you speak, where can they buy your book, The Karma of Success? And where can they follow you online? You can buy my book where books are sold most places. So Barnes and Noble, Amazon, check independent bookstores. It's not at all of them, but yay, support independent. And you can find me at liz-tran.com is my website. And on Instagram, I am reset NYC. And there's lots of content that I just try to have be like inspirational, motivational. And thank you for having me. This was so fun. I have not had this conversation with anyone before and I love it. I feel like we're so aligned. So thank you for having me. Yeah. Folks don't sleep on the gram. Liz, if you like my gram, you're going to like Liz's gram. It's same, same, but different. Good vibes. All right, Liz, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. With finance. With finance. With finance. Leo Aquino, it's a joy. It's a pleasure. So excited to have you again for another installment of Slow and Steady with Leo. Can't wait for these affirmations, dude. Take it away. Thank you for having me. I am enough and I have enough. I can buy a random tchotchke from Target with ease and pleasure. I stop overspending to cope with my climate anxiety. 
I take care of the earth in any small ways that I can, like remembering to bring my reusable bags to the store. My individual actions may not stop climate change, but no small deed goes unnoticed. I will do anything in my power to take care of the planet. My life is bigger than my student loans. It may not make sense to still pay them when the planet is burning, but I will keep going anyway. Whether or not I can afford my monthly student loan payments, I believe in myself. My parents siblings, friends, family, and I are all relieved of student loan debt through national student loan forgiveness programs. I believe in a collective debt-free future for all of us. We have everything we need right now to tear down oppressive systems. We are brave enough to imagine just and equitable economies. Okay, that's what I have. Thank you, Leo. I can definitely sense the theme of this segment. It's all about climate change. Is there anything you want to share, wisdom you want to impart? punctuations you'd like to add to this? Yeah, so I'm sure this will be released at a later date, but we are recording this right after the Southern California hurricane weekend where we had a, a hurricane that was downgraded to a tropical storm and then somehow an earthquake happened in the middle of all of that. And, you know, we're not the only ones in the country who are experiencing all these really strange events. And of course, we just heard about what happened in Maui and Lahaina. Yeah, things seem really scary right now. And I think, I just think about the fact that it's hard enough to kind of think about your money, your finances, believing in your own future enough to be like doing those things. But on top of that, like the planet is literally on fire. So it's a lot of things I'm hearing right now with folks dealing with student loans again and other, you know, financial pressures coming up with the holidays is like, well, F it. The world is burning. I'm going to just spend whatever. And it's just a scary time. So I wanted to write a little something that made people feel heard and seen. And you're not alone in that feeling. Although I may not have the answers. I don't think anybody does, Leo, but I, your affirmations and, you know, the words that make us all feel seen and like we're not alone in this mess. They're very much appreciated. So thank you, Leo. Thank you for having me. Until next time, my friend. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Thank you again for listening to Weird Finance. If you like the show, please express that like by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out a lot. And if you'd like to receive even more content from me, you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Nerd Letter. Each week, I'll send you a short email of things I've read and recommend. Sign up for it at thehellyagroup.com. Here we are at the end of another episode of Weird Finance, an iHeartMedia production, and just would not be possible without the help of many wonderful, caring, hardworking, and talented folks like my producer, Ramsey Yunt. He produced, edited, did some sound design, and he even sang a little bit on this episode. Thank you so much to Leo Kino for the love and the care they put into their segment, Slow and Steady with Leo. Thank you to my friend Michael Frosty Snow for lending your voice for this week's PSA. Our theme song was written and performed by me and my dear, dear friends, Jenna Parker and Andrew Parker. If you have any comments, questions about money, suggestions, or you want to be a part of the show, give us a call at 833-ASK-PACO. That's 833-275-7226. Or send us an email at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. 
that's it. We'll catch you here next week. In the meantime, take care. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.